You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. If you like interesting animal facts, you'll like our friend's podcast. If you don't like interesting animal facts, just kidding, who doesn't like interesting animal facts? Strange Animals Podcast brings you weekly episodes about surprising, mysterious, or just plain strange animals. From jellyfish to dragons, tune in to discover your new favorite animal. Find us at strangeanimalspodcast.com or download us through your favorite podcast app. It's that time of year again. Across the U.S. and much of the Northern Hemisphere, kids are going back to school. Pencils, papers, books, and lots of tests. Tests are all around us, ubiquitous to every day. In fact, you probably took a test the minute you were born. Today we look at a number of tests, used everywhere from movie theaters to hospitals, that were named after the people that created them. My name's Moxie. And this is your Brain on Facts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's known as the Bechtel test, and it goes like this. For a given work of fiction, usually applied to movies, to pass the test, a piece must have at least two female characters in it, who have names, who talk to each other about something other than a man. That must be pretty easy, you say to yourself. You'd be surprised how many movies don't meet that basic criteria. Think back to the original Star Wars or the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Those movies have so few female characters, you can count them on one hand, and those characters rarely share a scene, let alone a conversation. The highest-grossing film of all time, Avatar, has named female characters, but they only talk to each other about the male characters. Half of the nominees for Oscar for Best Picture in 2017 fail the Bechdel test, as do half of Pixar movies. It's not much better at Disney. The Lion King, Finding Nemo, even up, all fail. With all these movies failing, should we be worried? Little no, big yes. The no is because Alison Bechtel herself was not a psychologist or anthropologist or any sort of ologist. She created the test by happenstance when working as a cartoonist. The standard got its name from a 1985 strip for her comic, Dykes to Watch Out For introducing the idea as a winking criticism to male-dominated movies. One woman is explaining her three-point system for movie selection to her friend. That's pretty strict, the friend says, but a good idea. No kidding, the first woman says. I haven't seen a movie since Aliens. Bechtel, however, wasn't the originator of the idea. She has long attributed it to her friend Liz Wallace, who mentioned the standard to her as Bechtel was looking for ideas for the comic strip. 
Bechdel also attributes the idea more broadly to author Virginia Woolf, who, in A Room of One's Own, remarked, All these relationships between women, I thought, rapidly recalling the splendid gallery of fictitious women, are too simple. That the women in literature, contrary to dynamic real-life women, are almost always depicted in their relation to men. Nellison Bechtel has said she would like to see the test referred to as the Bechtel-Wallace test, so that's what we'll call it from here on out. And this is where the big yes comes in. While the test is simplistic, and works can pass that meet the criteria without actually having strong characters, for example, insipid films like Twilight pass, while Gravity, which has a fierce, clever, and interesting heroine, fail. The test also doesn't address the content of the conversation. A 30-second chat about nail polish would pass, while a feminist conversation about bullying by male co-workers would fail. And there are some works that arguably shouldn't be measured by this standard, such as the World War II drama Dunkirk. The Bechdel test's most important function is as a start to analysis and conversation. It gets people talking about female representation in media, which matters now more than ever. Media can play a powerful role in shaping children's interests and ambitions early in life, and influencing decisions about what they become as adults. It's gained an influence now that many children have almost non-stop internet access and are spending more time watching TV each day than they spent in school. Gender stereotypes are rooted in the mind between five and seven years of age, and gender bias is prevalent in media as much as it is in real life. According to the Gina Davis Institute of Gender in Media, in family films, male characters hold 81% of the jobs and outnumber female characters three to one. In the documentary, Misrepresentation, Davis reveals that between 1937 to 2005, there were only 13 female lead characters in animated films. 13 leads in 68 years. The main story arc for all of them, save one, was romance. When the majority of our stories portray women as sidekicks or damsels in distress, what message does that send to girls about what they can hope to achieve? In face of criticisms on the limitations of the Bechtel-Wallace test, writer Roxane Gay has proposed a six-part test. Is there a central female character, with supporting female characters, who doesn't compromise herself for love or live extravagantly for no explained reason? And at least half of the time, is this character a woman of color, transgender, and or queer? Gay's sixth point is a non-requirement. Female characters shouldn't have to live up to unrealistic feminist standard. They can be flawed so long as they feel like real human beings. The Ellen Willis test requires a story or song to make sense if the genders are flipped. This is meant to call out traditional gender roles, not biological factors. There are also tests named after characters. The Tauriel test is named after Tauriel, a female character in the films The Desolation of Smog and Battle of the Five Armies. The test simply asks if the canon has at least one woman who is good at her job. There are no named female characters in the original Hobbit novel. 
The Mako-Mori test was created after Pacific Rim failed the Bechdel test despite having a strong female lead character. A film passes this test if a female character gets her own narrative arc that is not supporting a man's story. The satirical Sexy Lamp test, created by comics writer Kelly Sue DeConnick, is the easiest to pass. If your female character could be replaced by a sexy lamp without the plot falling apart, quote, you're a hack. Many movies fail this test, especially if, as one Tumblr user suggested, you're allowed to stick a post-it note on the lamp. If you want to get even more frustrated by the film industry, Google Headless Woman Poster Trope. The Crystal Gems Test, named after the cartoon heroes on Steven Universe, combines Spectral Wallace, Macklemore, and Sexy Lamp. To pass this omnibus test, a work must pass the three aforementioned test, have at least four female characters, each character must pass at least one test, and each test must be passed by at least one major female character. Doing all that earns a piece a minimum passing grade. Is that a high bar? Yes. Is a high bar needed? In this humble reporter's opinion, you bet your sweet bippy. Another area in which the media really needs to get its representational act together is racial diversity. Ava DuVernay, director of the Martin Luther King film Selma and A Wrinkle in Time, was the first black woman to win the Director's Prize at Sundance, earn a Golden Globe nomination, and a nomination for Best Picture at the Academy Awards, with many people contending she should have been nominated for Best Director as well. She is also the namesake of the Bechtel-Wallace-style test for racial inclusion. In Manola Dargis's review of the 2016 Sundance Film Festival, the New York Times film critic wrote that a barometer was needed for persons of color. In honor of the director and Sundance alumna Ava DuVernay, what might be called the DuVernay test, in which African Americans and other minorities have fully realized lives, rather than serving as scenery in white stories. DuVernay's name has come to symbolize the ongoing battle by African American filmmakers to get movies made in Hollywood, given the furor over the Oscars' decision to limit her acclaimed civil rights drama Selma to two nominations, for Best Picture and Best Song. While DuVernay didn't start the eponymous test, she does approve. After the feminist film blog Women in Hollywood tweeted about Dargis's coinage, DuVernay posted, Wow, floored. What a lovely cinematic idea to embrace. What a thrill to be associated with it. If you look at DuVernay's work both on and off screen, the homage should come as no surprise. DuVernay has been one of the most consistently outspoken critics of diversity in Hollywood, and one of those leading by example in movies she's been making across the industry. For starters, she's been pushing the conversation forward with the point that diversity isn't simply about representation. It requires a commitment to cultivating a culture of belonging. There's a belonging problem in Hollywood, she said at the festival. Who dictates who belongs? The very body who dictates that looks all one way. Diversity, for DuVernay, isn't something you can be, it's something you do. But that hinges on commitment to provide space for people with different backgrounds in a way that accords those who have been left out a value beyond mere tokenism. I'm Jane Perlez. 
longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for the New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places: Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana, but of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face Off launches. April ninth. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. The Bechdel-Wallace test has also inspired the Russo test for LGBTQ representation. Developed by GLAAD, the Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation, the Vito Russo test takes its name from celebrated film historian, GLAAD co-founder, and author of The Celluloid Closet, Vito Russo. These criteria can help guide filmmakers to create more multidimensional characters, while also providing a barometer for representation on a wider scale. To pass the Vito Russo test, A film must contain a character that is identifiably lesbian, gay, bisexual, and/or transgender. That character must not be solely or predominantly defined by their sexual or gender identity. That is to say, they would still be a complete person without mentioning their sexuality or gender identity. The LGBTQ character must be integral to the plot, meaning they're not simply there to provide colorful commentary or set up a punchline. The character must matter. Of the 109 films released by major studios in 2017, Glad counted only 14, or 12.8 percent, containing characters identified as LGBTQ. There's a lot more we could be doing to support one another and to lift people up. Sometimes it can be as simple as providing positive feedback. Speaking of segues. We got another lovely five-star review on our Apple Podcast page. This one comes from Peregrine Falk. Moxie does an amazing job of relaying the most relevant and interesting information about some well-known and not so well-known subjects. Her perfect radio voice and humorous interjections make this podcast a very worthwhile listen. Thanks, Peregrine Falk, 
And thanks to everyone who leaves a review on the Apple Podcast page or on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash yourbrainonfacts. I'm especially pleased at how many people compliment me on my speaking voice, but the credit for that needs to go to my mother and her decades in radio. Speaking of our social media, there is a lot of annoying stuff out there on social media. Two of the things that can irritate me the most are horoscopes and personality tests, especially the Myers-Briggs Type Indicator. That's the one that assesses extroversion versus introversion, intuition versus sensing, feeling versus thinking, and judging versus perceiving, and gives you one of 16 results like INFJ or ESTP. The Myers-Briggs Type Indicator, or MBTI, has become a weirdly ubiquitous piece of pop psychology. Businesses have even used it in making hiring decisions. There are academic papers published evaluating the correlation between the MBTI and employment satisfaction. It shows up on Tinder profiles, and there are literally thousands of personality type clubs on the website meetup.com. Too bad it has no more scientific basis than online quizzes for which Harry Potter house you belong to. Add that to my list of irritations, by the way. The research out there says that the Myers-Briggs type indicator doesn't predict behavior in a consistent way, and psychometrically, the way it's constructed is pretty odd, says Ronald Riggio, who earned his PhD in psychology at the University of California, Riverside, and currently teaches at Claremont McKenna College. My first encounter with the scale was when a student presented it to me, and since it was so poorly constructed, I thought it was the student's work. His contempt for the test echoes many voices in the professional psychological community. The primary complaint about the MBTI has to do with the way the scale measures cognitive instinct. Myers-Briggs works in absolute binaries, black and white. You are either judging or perceiving, intuitive or sensing and it only takes one question to tip your results either way. It doesn't reflect the complicated reality of human nature. There's no room to be in the middle on anything. The MBTI does sound sciency, but there was very little science involved in its creation. In 1921, Carl Jung declared that all personalities could be sorted into one of eight categories. But wait, you say, isn't Jung one of the fathers of psychology? That's as may be, but he worked in a time before psychology actually used the tools of science, like controlled experiments. Jung's personality types were his own arbitrary choices based on people he knew. Fast forward 20-some years to the mother-daughter pair of novelist Isabel Briggs Myers and magazine writer Catherine Cooks Briggs. Catherine began reading Jung's take on personalities when her daughter became engaged to a nice young man who saw and reacted to the world quite differently than they did. They decided to take Jung's ideas and turn them into type indicators. They came up with 93 questions and doubled the personality types from 8 to 16. But these were still completely arbitrary and not all that meaningful. Even with its questionable validity, the test has clung on for nearly 70 years, and licensing the testing is a multi-million dollar business for the company that owns the rights to the name Myers-Briggs Type Indicator. So what explains the MBTI's popularity? 
It's probably the softball way the personality descriptions are written. They all sound positive and optimistic. The type indicator will never tell you that you're a bad person. Psychologists call that the Barnum Effect, says Riggio. The Barnum Effect says that if you write something so general, it can apply to anyone. They all sound right, they're so positive and generic, and people say, oh my god, it's a miracle, it totally applies to me. Basically, they're like horoscopes in the newspaper. There's no danger in taking your Myers-Briggs temperature, as long as you don't get too invested in the results. Think of it as you would a fortune teller at the fair or a BuzzFeed quiz. A bit of fun, and not something to base decisions on. While your Myers-Briggs results may be rubbish, there was proper science behind the creation of the APGAR test. It may sound like an acronym, but it's actually the last name of Dr. Virginia APGAR, whose post-birth assessment protocol has saved countless infants' lives. While parents might be eager to hold their baby as soon as it's born, the first minutes of life must be devoted to the APGAR test. This test provides a numerical score for the infant's heart rate, muscle tone, physical appearance, and breathing. The test is performed at one minute and five minutes after birth. Sometimes it takes baby a few minutes to get going. There's an easy mnemonic to remember it. Appearance, pulse, grimace, activity, respiration, which spells APGAR. You could say it's an acronym after all, but since the doctor's name came first, this would be called a BACRONYM, meaning an acronym created after the fact. Dr. Virginia Apgar developed the test while working as a professor of anesthesiology at Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons and director of obstetric anesthesia at Presbyterian Hospital in the early 1950s. Her impact on infant survival has been as great as the test is simple. The score gave physicians and nurses a requirement to look at the newborn in an organized method, says Dr. Richard Smiley of New York Presbyterian, and it's helped prevent the death of countless babies. Once physicians and nurses had to assign a score, it created an imperative to act to improve that score. It was essentially the birth of clinical neonatology, Smiley says. Before the scoring system was widely adopted, Newborns who had trouble breathing, or were small, or a bit blue, were often labeled as stillborn. It was assumed they would not live, and they would be left to die. There was no protocol for trying to resuscitate newborns or to intervene medically, even with things as simple as oxygen and incubators. Virginia Apgar was just one of nine women pursuing an MD from Columbia University. She graduated fourth in her class and followed this with a two-year surgical internship at what is now New York Presbyterian or Columbian University Medical Center. Although Apgar was an excellent student, her mentor, the chief of surgery, worried that as a woman she wouldn't be able to establish a surgical practice and encouraged her to pursue anesthesiology instead. Apgar threw herself fully into the field and would become the director of the new division of anesthesia within the Department of Surgery. Her role included clinical responsibilities, as well as building the residency program. Apgar continued to break barriers. From 1949 to 59, 
She was Columbia's College of Physicians and Surgeons' first female full-time professor. When the Division of Anesthesia became an independent department, Apgar became the Director of Obstetric Anesthesia. During this time, she attended countless births and worked with colleagues to quickly assess a baby's health in the first minute of life, looking for birth defects as well as the effects of labor, delivery, and maternal anesthesia. Newborn circulatory or respiratory issues were not always conspicuously apparent, often resulting in the infant's death. Apgar presented her idea for the score at a national anesthesiology meeting in 1952 and published it in a full manuscript in 53. After the wide adoption of the Apgar score, the first neonatal intensive care units were opened. Virginia Apgar's work inspired clinical scoring systems in other areas of medicine, such as intensive care. The Glasgow Coma Scale quantifies the status of the central nervous system, while the Apache II Scale attempts to predict the morbidity and mortality rate of patients in the ICU. Apgar never stopped working or learning until her death in 1974. She obtained a master's degree in public health from Johns Hopkins School of Public Health, which led to a role at the March of Dimes as the head of the new division on congenital malformations. She wrote the popular book, Is My Baby All Right? She made her own musical instruments, performed in a symphony, and learned to fly a single-engine plane in her 50s. Virginia Apgar not only championed newborn babies, she also paved the way for women to pursue careers in medicine. I don't know about you, but I suddenly feel like I need to get my butt in gear. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. Of course, Virginia Apgar isn't the only woman in medicine to have given us a test that bears her name. The Ashby Technique is a method for determining the volume and lifespan of red blood cells in humans, first published by Dr. Winifred Ashby in 1919. Helen Ohlendorf Kurth was a dermatologist whose name was synonymous with the now less used Ohlendorf probe sign after demonstrating in her thesis that the lesions of secondary syphilis are sensitive to touch. The Williams stain is a superior testing method for rabies, developed by Anna Williams, working with the New York City Health Department at the turn of the last century. And on and on. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. Today's episode was brought to you by the word slurp. Slurp. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes.